Hey listeners, welcome to 10X Growth Strategies podcast. This is your host, Preeti Padmanabhan, technology executive, investor, and board member. Today, we will feature the book, Innovation Factory by Preet Banerjee. Preet is Chief Technology Officer at ANSYS, a leader in engineering simulation. He has a rich career journey as a successful serial entrepreneur, senior executive in large companies, and prior to working in the industry, he held distinguished roles in academia. He was listed as Fast Company Top 100 Business Leader in 2009 and has won several awards from IEEE, ASEE, and NSF. It is exciting to have you on the podcast. Welcome, Preet, to 10X Growth Strategies podcast. Thank you very much, Preeti. It's an absolute honor uh, to be here today. And I'm excited to talk about the topic of innovation. Excellent. Tell us about yourself, uh, the key highlights from your stellar career journey. So, uh, yeah, so I've been fortunate to have had sort of three phases in my career. Uh, when I graduated with my PhD from the University of Illinois, uh, I started, my first phase in my career was in academia. And as you noted, uh, I was a professor at uh, the University of Illinois for a dozen years as a department head at Northwestern. I was a Dean of Engineering at University of Illinois Chicago. So first 22 years in my, academy, uh, in my career, I worked uh, as a researcher supervising PhD students writing more than 300 papers, getting all kinds of recognitions as fellow of IEEE, fellow of ACM, et cetera. So that was my academic career. But what I found was uh, in academia, I was, I was, while I was having all this research publications and so on, none of those research things were actually making it into products in terms of real impact to society. So that's what motivated me to phase two in my career, which is to start, uh, and I started two very small companies, uh, Excel Chip and Bionichip. Those were based on technology out of uh, Northwestern and University of Illinois. And both the companies, I was able to sort of raise some money from VCs, build their product, uh, sold their product, and sold both the companies uh, to uh, the first one, an Excel chip to Quick to Xilinx, and the second one, Banachi to Quickstream Media. So that was phase two in my career. And these I did while I was in academia. I took leave, you know, as you can say, in sabbatical from university, and I went back to the uh, job yeah, security yeah. of tenure. <laughs> But then after I went back for the second time, uh, when I came back to academia, I felt like I really needed the excitement uh, of building something. So about 15 years ago, I left academia, came to the Bay Area and led, uh, led HP labs worldwide for about five years. And this was, I'll tell you Preeti, this was the best job I had in my career. I said, say, say that while I worked for, for ANSYS, but it was just absolutely amazing to work with all the brilliant researchers and scientists at HP labs and trying to push really long-term innovation. And then I've had other opportunities as a CTO at ABB, a large power and automation company in Switzerland, CTO at Schneider Electric, another power automation company based in France. So, and then I, I, I mean, I was, uh, so again, five, five years ago, I joined uh, ANSYS as a CTO. So I have had, as I look back on my career, I see that I have had some contributions in innovation in academia, innovation in startups, and now innovation in large companies, which brought me to writing up this book. 
you have made such a big impact in so many different areas. I can't wait to unpack that. Innovation Factory, how did you come up with that title for your book and why did you choose to write this book? So I, I actually, uh, because of my, my strange career, uh, I have been asked to participate in podcasts like, like what you're doing, Preeti. I mean, I've done like four or five podcasts in the last three, four years. I had many people like Glamiel Grant from, from Mayfield Ventures asked me to do a podcast and all kinds of people. And so I started thinking and essentially they said, you know what? You have some interesting things to share with the listeners about how innovation is done. So why don't you write a book? So the sort of the thesis of my book is, is that large companies, they, I mean, I kind of categorize innovation into sort of three types, right? Horizon one, which is a short term, horizon two, which is the medium term and horizon three, which is the long-term disruptive. And sort of the key thesis of my book is that large companies do a good job in the horizon one. They do a reasonably good job in the horizon two, but they really struggle with the long-term disruptive. So what can they do? And so the book kind of talks about how through the right partnerships with academia and startups in a practice called open innovation, you can actually make an impact. So that is the core thesis of my book. And I used to talk about it in various podcasts and, and, and in write-ups and so on. And, and a couple of the people who interviewed me said, Prit, you, you should write a book. So I said, well, let me, let me do something. So the title Innovation Factory is just saying, everybody talks about innovation, right? And what, what I talk about here is, if you actually think about it, you can set up the process of innovation, boom, 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 do this, do this, do this, et cetera, set it up like a factory and out will come disruptive innovation. Obviously it's not that easy, but that was a concept. And that's why I try to show in the, in the visuals of my book, right? It's sort of having factories and then having the cloud and all the digital technologies that we have uh, today. So, so that was the reason for the title. Excellent. I think it, it is um, it's certainly an, an eye-catching uh, title and, uh, and it's unique uh, for sure. And I myself have read uh, some of the innovation books uh, that you mentioned in your uh, uh, in your videos. Is one is uh, the Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, and I've heard Jeffrey Moore speak, and also have read some of his books. Zone to Win is one of the books you quoted. Uh, I'd love to understand, like, tell us the key concepts from their books. Uh, that are valuable for innovation. And if you like, you can even touch upon what is the gap that you're bridging in your book? Absolutely, that's a great, great point. Actually, so I look on those two individuals as my absolute gurus, right? I have I've read their books, I've listened to their stories and so on. In fact, when I was at HP Labs and at Schneider Electric, I brought Jeffrey Moore to HP Labs and Schneider to help guide me and my team on how to do innovation. So they are absolute experts in the field, right? So let me kind of, unpack the first one. So Clayton Christensen, right? The Harvard genius, right? He's the one who actually identified the problem the large companies face about this sort of innovators dilemma and so on that. And what he basically says is when you look at innovation, right? Large companies are have lots and lots of products and you are like, for example, you are at HP and you're having laptops and copiers and printers and so on. And you're spending all your time in sustaining that innovation, meaning that you have a laptop and how can I just keep innovating on that laptop to make sure that the laptop has enough market share and so on, right? 
But then there is the startups that come up with these completely crazy ideas, right? So you're, you're selling laptops and so on, and out comes an iPhone, right? Which is completely disruptive. Out comes an iPad, which is disruptive. Right? So basically what he, he observes is that large companies are really good at sustaining innovation, but the disruptive innovation, right? It comes out of left field. And typically you and I sit in Silicon Valley, right? So we, we see startups doing this all the time. But the key thing that he said is, well, in order for a large company to do the disruptive innovation, you have to actually do something different, right? And initially it will be just for a few customers and it will not really catch on. And then there's this exponential pocket stick effect and then it really picks up. And then the business of the disruptive innovation, the new iPhone that you create from Apple becomes a lot larger than the, the MacBooks and the, and the servers that Apple sells, right? And that is, by the way, exactly what happened, right? So zone to win, uh, Jeffrey Moore kind of talks about basically the same concept, right? But he kind of talks about it as four zones of innovation. Again, saying that large companies like HP, Apple, whatever, right? That they have the, the current products and they just need to make sure that they're squeezing the juice out of that lemon, right? Making sure everything is happening. So he talks about the productivity zone and the performance zone. These are applied to horizon one technologies. But then he says, but Every company, right? If you are a, a computer company and right, want to invent the iPhone, iPad, you need to incubate new businesses. And he calls that Horizon 3. And essentially, again, he's talking about the same thing, right? How does a large company do these things, right? But the gap that exists is it is really a great concept at that level. But then if I am a manager in a large company, I really don't know. So what do I do with this concept? Oh, it's a beautiful chart, S-curve that Creighton has drawn. And here are the four zones. Now I am sitting in my company and says, how do I act on it, right? So it was not very prescriptive in my opinion, uh, because I actually had Jeffrey Moore come to my, my, my organization and talk about these things, right? And so I said, well, let me give something. So I had some practical insights that I, I learned over the years, and this is what I kind of shared. So yes, I also talk about the fact that you have to disrupt the innovation. You have to incubate, but I actually say, here is an org chart. This is how you should do it, right? And this is how you should, so uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to talk about those details. Those are the gaps that are different from those fantastic books by Clayton Christensen and from Jeffrey Moore. Excellent. I think you brought up some really good points. And uh, I personally, just to add some insights, like when I was at a large company, Cisco, uh, and uh, we had like different uh, new business units created, uh, and those incubation units that you mentioned, like the, and I used to go join those incubation units, because that was where the most fun uh, projects were. Uh, how do you do both? How do you create that incubation units? while keeping the regular business sustainable and continue to keep the cash cow or the key business generating those revenues because you have to keep the shareholders happy, right? So how do you do both? And uh, yeah, I do look forward to delve into deeper details and those three horizons you talked about, like would love to hear what are the key concepts behind those three, cons uh, three horizons of innovation you can share with us? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, horizon one is the shorter term innovation, right? So you sit in a company like HP, right? And they're, as I said, making printers, copiers, laptops, servers, and so on. And so for HP to do well, what should the next laptop be? Oh, well, we have to make it twice as powerful with the processors. Let's put four times as much memory and so on and so forth. And let's put this thing and a, a nicer fan, a nicer color. Those are all features that are important, right? And, and 
By the way, the Horizon One innovation is what pays our salaries in companies. So I'm sitting at ANSYS, the money is actually coming out of the Horizon One innovation. So, and, and the reason they do a good job is they have a current, I mean, again, most large companies have not just one product, unlike a startup, right? They have a slew of products and, and for that set of products, they are selling the product to customers. They're getting feedback from the customers. Then they're saying to the customer saying, hey, you have it, but your competitor Dell has this other thing. And that brings in the information, right? And that feeds in the information as to what the R&D team has to build for, for the next, next quarter, next year, right? So they nail it. I mean, every company does a great job in the Horizon 1. Horizon 2 is adjacent markets, right? So for example, uh, we are in a software company, ANSYS makes software which, which, we, which runs on workstations and so on. And he said, instead of running it as a perpetual license on your workstation, we want to go to the cloud. So going to the cloud, well, I mean, there is a technology and there's a business model change and so on, consumption models and so on. So that is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an adjacent innovation, a horizon to innovation, and even that people do well. So when I was at ABB, we used to have say transformers sitting in selling to the US, right, in 110 volts. And you want to go to China, 220 volts, slightly different frequency. Yep, we can we can do it. Change the coils a little bit and it is it is done. The disruptive innovation is the is the real hard part, right? And very few companies do this. So in my book, I say, well, I mean, here was Barnes and Noble selling books on a brick and mortar store, and Amazon comes here with a disruptive idea. Let's sell it online, right? And so Amazon as a startup did that first Horizon 3 innovation, right? That, that uh, essentially kicked out Barnes & Noble. Then Amazon said, well, today we are selling books. What if I sell Tide detergent, right? Anything on the planet we will sell, right? And that was Horizon 2 innovation, right? Because essentially they had an online thing for books. Now they are going into slightly different market, right? Selling all kinds of stuff. So, and then they essentially started competing with Walmart, right? So Walmart, if you go to one of the 5,000 Walmarts in the US, they have 200,000 SKUs of products, right? They'll have a tight detergent, a bounce paper towel, bound, and a bounty, whatever paper towel, and, and some Charmin bathroom tissue. Now, if you want a particular type of, of bathroom tissue, right, which is not available in Walmart, you can go to Amazon and get it, right? They have 2 million SKUs, right, or even more, and even getting shipped, shipped to you tomorrow. That was very disruptive, right? That was very innovative, which is, I would say, Horizon 2. So what Amazon did is sort of, after they did the online book selling, they essentially started selling any items, right? From And they started competing against Walmart, right? So Walmart has about 200,000 SKUs, right? Of different products, right? They have bounty paper towels and Charmin bathroom tissue and so on. And if you want to have this peculiar bathroom tissue from some other uh, uh, market here, right? They, they, I mean, Walmart doesn't carry that, but Amazon will, and you can just get it shipped to your home. So that was very, very innovative, but it was Horizon 2 because they took the same infrastructure of online book selling to selling all kinds of other stuff. Then you see Amazon really innovated in going to the cloud, right? Essentially, as I said, well, I instead of having cloud, I mean, computing where, where HP was selling servers and laptops and so on, right? Essentially, you, you computing, you just go on the cloud and you do it. That was a Horizon 3. So here was Amazon doing all kinds of sort of very, very interesting innovation. The same thing can be said for Apple, right? The rest of the industry was selling laptops and servers and so on. They came up with the iPhone, first disruptive innovation. Then the iPad, another disruptive innovation. Then they did iTunes, right? A whole music store and so on. And Sony having both PDAs and tablets and music and so on, they couldn't figure out how to bring those things together, but, but Apple did. So 
That is the essence of this disruptive innovation and long-term innovation. And what I'm saying, how can large companies like the ones that we work in embrace the concepts of Horizon 3 disruptive innovation? That's great. I think that's very important for large companies to understand because the largest market share and the and the well, what the global economy is rewarding is all these companies that are leading those disruptive innovation, which are the Amazons and the Apples of the world. Um, so tell us how can companies use ideas from your book uh, for business innovation and growth? So Preeti, just one, I want to highlight one more thing that there are enough smart people in large companies that actually know how to build these disruptive products. It is just that the structures don't allow them to do this. So I will tell you, I mean, people know about this thing about Kodak, oh, they were in the analog printing business and so on, and they completely missed the digital journey. That is not right. People at Kodak in their research labs knew exactly how digital printing works. It was just that the analog printing world was the cash cow and they were hesitant to bring in a new technology that would be disruptive to their analog business. And that was a mistake. So it is not like there are not smart people in these large companies. There are lots of smart people. They're just not able to, to figure out right how to do this. For example, when Apple had the iPod, the music player that sort of Steve Jobs famously said, thousand uh, uh, sort of songs in my pocket, right? And it was selling beautifully and here comes iPhone, right? Andy Rubin said, hey, I'm going to do the iPhone. The iPhone would cannibalize the iPod. And in a normal large company, the large company would say, the, 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 the iPod GM would say, hey, you cannot do the iPhone. And they just crush the iPhone. At Apple, they said, no, somebody's going to disrupt the iPod. And if it is going to be somebody, it might as well be us, right? So essentially, Steve Jobs asked, encouraged, Apple to do the iPhone that killed the iPod business. This is essentially what I'm saying, right? So you need to create the structure, set up the incentives so that these disruptive innovations can grow within the company in forms of incubations, complemented by partnerships with academia and startups, which is the core of what I'm going to talk about. You bring up a very good point, right? Basically, the goal is the key thing in mind, because in the case of disrupting your own business, that's going to ruffle a lot of feathers within the company, and that's going to cause a lot of chaos. But uh, what I'm hearing is that it's important to keep the focus on the goal of being sustainable as a company. And uh, we all know the story of how Kodak uh, did not actually, uh, you know, do that because they did not uh, disrupt themselves, uh, right? Uh, so that makes that brings up a very good uh, point there. Uh, I would love to understand examples from your background where you applied the frameworks from your book, Innovation Factory, and how did that help your company? So I will. So that's a great question, right? So, so what I kind of mentioned in my book is that. When you're looking at these disruptive innovations, you actually should look at both academia and startups, right? Academia is where the true disruptive innovation happens. And sometimes when you work in companies, you don't realize that, right? And I, in sort of chapter two in my book, I talk about lots and lots of examples, like the internet was sort of demonstrated, invented at UCLA by Professor Lyon Prindler, right? The whole CRISPR gene, whatever technology, right, was invented by Jennifer Dudna, professor at, at Berkeley, right? Uh, or Larry Smart, who was my colleague at the University of Illinois, invented the Mosaic browser, right? And now look at where the internet browser technology has come, right? So the point I say in my book is, 
if you really look at the disruptive innovation, relational databases, right? It came out of Hector Garcia Molina at Stanford University. And that is something when I was in academia, I mean, I spent 20 years, right? With working with my 30 plus PhD students, I did a lot of very, very interesting innovations. And I took those innovations to the companies and they all say, yeah, this really looks really good, et cetera. But the companies felt that there's such a large gap between the concepts written up in my book in terms of papers to taking it to the product that that little tape or this type or whatever I took, it would take a long time to take that and make it in your product. So that gap exists because in academia, the metrics and roles are, you should do, you should teach students, you should write publication, get the funding. Nobody, no professors in academia are, are incentivized to actually start companies, except a very few, right? So this is a personal story where I was writing all these papers, I had more than 350 papers and nobody cared about any, right? Nobody used any of the stuff in society. So I felt if anybody has to do it, when I came up with this whatever match compiler, it has to be me. So I left, I, I took leave from the university, started Excel chip and with a real focus, built a product which would take MATLAB programs in and outputted some things for map onto FPGAs. And there was no product in the market that did it, right? So this, this innovation, the way you can take MATLAB and generate VHDL, I mean, things for, for, for FPGAs is something that DARPA, the, the US Defense Agency, right? That they are funding long-term R&D and they've had a call for papers. I, we, we won the, the thing, right? And we did a three-year project for multi-year things, right? To solve that problem. Once we solved the problem, we wrote the papers, and that would have actually died had I not made the case, let me start a company, do it, right? Because I've seen so many other wonderful things just go out there, right? Now, in Jennifer Dudner's case, she's very famous. Companies like Moderna and BioNTech, right, took that technology and made the COVID vaccine. But had they not done it, that CRISPR technology would have stayed in the university setting. So the point I say in my book and my personal story is, in order to tech, do the tech transfer, some of the faculty actually start companies. And I am just a very tiny example of it. There are a lot more famous examples. As I say in the book, John Hennessy from Stanford started MIPS. Nick McCown from Stanford started NICERA and across bought by VMware. Andrea Goldsmith started companies and sold them to, to Qualcomm and others. So, so lots and lots of examples of academic people who have gone on to start companies. And that's a great way to do disruptive innovation. The second thing uh, I, I have seen in my book is uh, I kind of say, hey, you can do partnership with, with companies and so, right? So when I was doing Excel chip, right? Excel chip was trying to create a thing from MATLAB in and, and, and VHGL out to map on the FPGAs. We did a partnership with Xilinx Corporation. Then Xilinx actually invested in us. They did a sort of OEM partnership and then ultimately Xilinx bought us, right? And this was a way for Xilinx, the large company making FPGAs to bring a whole new disruptive product. Previously, designs were done, you enter it in VHDL, push a button, do a synthesis, place and route, get an FPGA. Our technology said, forget the VHDL, you can do it at a much higher level, write it in MATLAB and boom, it comes out, right? So those are the kinds of disruptive innovation. I'm sure there are very, very smart people at Xilinx, but they never got a chance to work on their problem like that. Here is a startup Excel chip that, that solved that problem. And it was 
I, I would say that that Zalings were very smart. They were watching various startups and they decided to partner with Excel chip and ultimately buy us, right? That's how a disruptive technology comes in. So on sort of leveraging on that background, let me kind of share with you some sort of insights that I talk about in a book. So in the Bay Area, you and I both live in the Bay Area, right? People say Google is very innovative, right? And then there are some critics who say, no, Google is not that innovative because many of the new things that they talk about, YouTube and Android, were actually not developed inside Google. Now, the point I'm trying to say is Google, when they started, they were fantastic in search, right? That is their core, their horizon one innovation on is on search on the desktop. But as they, and their business model is, they will put ads right next to the search. But you got, when you're doing search, you're only staying near a computer maybe for one minute in a day, right? And here are all the people spending four or five hours on Facebook looking at content. So essentially the innovation was, we need to have a product that people will bring people to the Google platform and watch content. What is there? They scan the thing, right? And they found YouTube is one such thing, right? Where people are uploading videos and, and, and many people, my wife watches like, I would say three, four hours of, of YouTube per day, right? So now here is a chance. So people say, oh no, so YouTube, that thing was not innovative. I, I think it was very innovative for Google because here is a way to transition from search, which is only allowing you to sell ads in that one minute per day to selling ads for four hours per day. And now including the YouTube, right? Taking all the key, keywords of YouTube that this YouTube is podcast is about innovation done by a person from Northwest and so on, right? Then what kind of ads would be relevant to a person watching our video, right? Is a technology that Google is really good at. Then Google said, hey, yeah, I'm doing all my search on my, my desktop, right? The future is all about mobile. So we need to control the mobile. And they went and acquired Android. Yes, they acquired Android. But the innovation was, how do I take, go from the desktop to the mobile by acquiring mobile and then taking that Android operating system and putting it in all the handsets. That is actually innovative. So my, the point I say in my book is, you can say, that, oh, you have to do all the disruptive innovation yourself. No, my point is, think about the disruptive innovation, be very strategic, then either do it yourself or bring it in from a startup or from academia and so on. That is the key thing in my book. So to summarize, what I'm hearing is like, you know, you got you got the opportunity to either build it yourself, like take the idea and build it yourself. And in the Xilinx case, they had the opportunity to partner uh, with that innovative company. And then you also gave the example of Acquire, right, where you're buying or M&A as a way. So uh, really good examples of all the three types by which different companies have done that. Last example I'll give, Preeti, and to really home in the point, right? So I worked for five years at HP Labs, right? And the role of HP Labs, right, was to invent absolute brand new things. And the team was you know, innovative, 600 of the best researchers working in the world, right, on this problem. And we invented some lots of things, like example, we invented the Memrister, which is a non-volatile uh, memory, right? Now, sitting inside a company whose salespeople can know how to sell PCs and printers and, and servers, they did not know how to sell memory, right? Non-volatile memory. We are not Micron. So the sales was not enabled or set up to sell this disruptive product and it's just died. So the point I write in my book is, if you are serious about disruptive innovation, 
You should create a CTO office. You should have your R&D labs. But please, please, please give that R&D lab its own sales and marketing function, its own operation to incubate brand new businesses, just like you have startups in the real world, right? And follow the same model of funding the startup with 2 million Series A and 5 million Series B and so on. And then don't touch it, grow the business, even though it cannibalizes your existing business. So incubate the iPhone business, right? Inside your startup like HP Lab, once it grows to $100 million, then let it compete and be on par with the rest of the business units. Absolutely. And, and, the tr- and the fact is that if you don't do it, somebody else, someone else is going to do it, right? So, yeah. Um, I was curious about the term open innovation uh, and you uh, talked about it in the book and how does open innovation connect industry and academia to drive long-term innovation? Absolutely. So the term open innovation was actually coined by a very, very famous professor at uh, UC Berkeley. His name is Henry Chisborough. And what he observed is, I mean, again, if you want to do this kind of disruptive innovation, you need to partner with, with academia and startups. Right? And this is why I, I said in my book, right, the disruptive innovation happens in academia as examples of the, the internet at UCLA and the, and the CRISPR technology from Berkeley and the Mosaic browser from Illinois, right? So now in order for a company to, to really bring those technologies, like Netscape actually took the Mosaic browser and built the Netscape browser, right? So that is how that technology gets, gets transferred. Or you do it with by acquiring startups like the Android or, or YouTube, right? And, and so on. So open innovation is a concept that if you want to do, bring in disruptive innovation, partner better with academia and with startups. And, and essentially, then I in my book, I say, okay, how do you partner with academia and how do you partner with startups? Excellent. You also touch upon some of the key funding models because for the success of any of these, you need funding, be it within the company or as a startup. Uh, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on funding models for innovation across startups through large companies. Actually, that is a great question. And I've really thought about it for a while, right? So if you look at the total R&D budget in the world across all industries, it is $1 trillion. One trillion with a T, thousand billion dollars, and lots of money, and that goes into automotive, in aerospace, in healthcare, and so. So, in the automotive area, of that one trillion, about two hundred billion dollars is going into automotive research, right? So, then you look at that total amount of funding, and the funding comes from three broad sources. One is the federal government, right? So, in the federal government, they do R and D, right? In from the Department of Defense or Department of Energy or NS National Science Foundation or NASA or whatever, right? And there's a big chunk of funding that comes from the government and that funds academia, right? When I was a professor at the University of Illinois, I used to get money funding from NSA, from DOD, DARPA, et cetera. That's one set, right? So government is funding academia and the the labs like Oak Ridge National Lab or Argonne National Lab. That's one set, right? And the output of that is sort of publications and outside talent, PhD students and so on. So funding from government, funding universities, output is students and publications. ANSYS, which makes revenues about $2 billion, we invest about 300 million in R&D. So you would say my CEO or the board is paying the $300 million to do R&D. 
When I was at, a, the, at HP, we were spending like $2.3 billion in R&D. When I was at ABB, we are spending $1.3 billion in R&D. So that R&D funding of the company is coming from the CEO and the board to fund R&D within the company. So you have the funding from the company, R&D, and, and it's funding products coming out. The, the output is the products coming from that company. The third type of funding is venture capitalists, right? We sit in Silicon Valley, VCs like Mayfield Ventures, I mean, all the other things that, that we have, right? So they are funding startups, right? So if a VC funding startups and outcomes totally disruptive uh, products and innovation. And each of them in the past, they were all sort of single points, right? Here is government funding universities, boom. And here is uh, companies funding this and they own R&D. What I'm saying in the book is things are mixing and matching, right? So a company is now also funding academia to, to bring sort of, uh, sort of company closer to VCs are funding, well, I guess uh, companies are also funding startups, right? Because they take investment in startups and so on. And then, so there's a whole mishmash things that are happening and the US chips act just, just happening, right? And we are actually participating in that, right? That is funding academia and large companies to take gov sort of government funding and, and startups, right? To take government funding and build really, really innovative products in the US in the semiconductor industry. That's great. I, that that cross pollination of uh, different uh, funding sources certainly gives more innovation a chance. Uh, so somebody is not just stuck with one source, uh, but they can explore multiple different sources there. Uh, one of the chapters you talk about uh, digital technologies to drive innovation. Tell us a little more about that. You know, I actually thought whether I should include that chapter in the book or should I write a second second book. So. Think of this chapter as a, a as a trailer for the second book that Prith will write. Right? It's about digital technology. So, what is what's a digital technology, and what has what is the impact to business? Right? So, people talk about oh, digital transformation. I am doing business one way, and I can use these digital technologies to transform the way businesses can be done. Right? So, I decided to pick sort of the top ten technology that I think will be disruptive in our generation, right? As we look in the next 20, 30 years. So I, so again, I work for Forensis, so I'm sort of biased, but, but one of the things I talk about is simulation-driven product innovation, right? People used to, in the past, build hardware prototypes, and now they can, they're doing it on the computer using simulation. But then I talk about digital technologies such as AI machine learning, very, very big transformative thing, or high-performance computing, supercomputing, another digital technology or internet of things, IOT or platform technologies, platforms such as the Android platform, iOS platform and so on. Platforms such as wireless technology, all the 5G, 6G technology and so on. Uh, technologies such as quantum computing, right? I mean, again, there's a lot of interest around in, in quantum. So I list about 10 of these technologies and for your readers, I urge them to kind of look at it because I took some a good look at it and each of the digital technologies, I try to say, What's the size of the market today? So it's like in the, in the IoT, for example, it's like $700 billion, right? And who are the key large company players? Players such as Cisco or, or, or whatever, right? And then who are the startups in this area, right? So who are the big platform companies like Google or Amazon and so on? And who are the startups in the platform space? So just to give the users or the readers a, a feel for, hey, if I'm about to do some innovation, here are some technology I can look at. And the idea of the startup would not be just based on a single thing on quantum computing, 
but taking a collection of different technologies, right? Take a quantum computer, for example, right? And use it to speed up simulation. Like, I mean, actually we are looking at it and look at the output of it can be viewed on a, uh, using virtual reality and connected by IoT on the metaverse. I'm just making a random thing, right? So if somebody can come up with simulation using quantum computing, right? Available on the cloud, viewed with virtual reality. So the point of chapter eight is, let your imagination completely wild, right? Here, I think of it as a many of different things, right? You go to a restaurant, you can do this, 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 and you can make yourself a fantastic a meal. And that is what how exciting this whole field is. That sounds really exciting. And I'm looking forward to your next book. I think that sounds really good for us to delve into. And I can see your next maybe one more phase where you're advising many companies that are into doing multiple things, right? So that, that could be another angle of how you're adding so much value for so many people. Uh, I'd love to also ask you about driving global innovation in the 21st century or actually even further, right? How do you drive in this century um, and what do you have in your book about it? So, I mean, I actually took uh, the last chapter in my book was I was trying to be philosophical and say, hey, what, what is going on, right? And, and, and I looked at my personal career and, and I came to the U.S., 30 years ago, right? When I finished my PhD in IIT Kharagpur, I came to the US because at that time I felt like if I really wanted to advance my career, I had to come to the US, right? And maybe you felt the same way when you, when you came. But then I, I just went back to India last month and I see so much opportunities in India, right? I mean, these people who are graduating from IITs and other schools, bits and so on, right? They are not hungry to come to the US because they have so much opportunities right there in India, right? So now, if you are a company or a global company, you say, hey, because the U.S. companies in the past, all they had to do was, uh, you are in the U.S., you go to Illinois, go to MIT, go to Stanford and recruit those very bright, bright people because the brightest innovators came to the U.S. universities to get the education. They did not have to go to other places. Today, my philosophical statement is these people are staying in their current places and they would love to work from wherever they are. And COVID transformed the world, right? We have seen how in COVID, during COVID, people could stay at home and work collaboratively with the digital technologies like what we are using today with Zoom and so on. Right? So now the whole game is about identifying innovative ideas, bringing innovative team members from all around the world, right? Who can collaborate, not necessarily with synchronizing time, right? All getting together at 8 a.m. in the morning, no communicating asynchronously through technology like Slack, right? So I start, and so you are doing 24-hour innovation, right? You start something, a project here, right? And as soon as I go to sleep, somebody wakes up in Singapore and continues the thing, then you do this, and it's all enabled by things on the cloud, right? Look at Google Docs. I start a document, and you edit it, you change it. When I'm sleeping, you're editing it, and this is how innovation happens. So, so the point being, in the 21st century, right? It is about tapping the best minds in the planet anywhere in the world, right? And how do you encourage them to collaborate and do some absolutely innovative things? It's no longer the old world. 
Absolutely. In fact, uh, where I work at Freshworks, I, my, I manage a global team and uh, we work with India and the US-India cross-border. Uh, so exactly we see that happening where I'm working during my day and then hand over to the other team on the other side of the world. Uh, so that does uh, certainly make the world go round and more stuff get done. Uh, any final insights for the audience? The final insight is the technology of artificial intelligence is going to be a real, real disruption to innovation. And some of us get scared. Oh my God, AI is scary. But just look at the last few weeks, right? We have had a lot of noise around chat GPT, right? And chat GPT can do this and so on. So if I am an, an artist, I can compose, try to compose a poetry. You give chat GPT, write a poetry about about Preeti and her background in Freshworks, and they will search about Preeti's background, look at Freshworks and do a fantastic poem, right? And so now you may say, oh my God, I lose my job. But I would say that I would, I think of it as a calculator, right? The calculator changed the way engineers did their stuff, right? Technologies like chat GPT will bring so much more intelligence, right? To us, right? It will search through all kinds of information in the web and make my job as an innovator, even more powerful. So think of me as a turbocharged innovator, right? Turbocharged by AI with technologies like ChatGPT. I mean, that's just an example. Great, that's a great insight uh, for the audience. Uh, Preet, it's been a great honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Audience, check out the book, Innovation Factory by Preet Banerjee. And thank you for tuning in today. Thank you.